I think we'll get started. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Meg Mackin. I'm Director of Philanthropy for the Mid-Atlantic and Midwest regions at the Foundation for Fighting Blindness. So I have the pleasure of working with donors in the Mid-Atlantic and Midwest. And welcome to the session, RD Fund Biotech Overview. The session will last approximately 65 minutes, and the remaining 20 minutes of the session will be reserved for questions. Please note the session is being audio recorded. If you're using an assisted listening device, please turn to channel four. And don't forget, please silence your cell phone. The speaker for this session is Dr. Rusty Kelly. I have his bio, which is about four pages long. It's very impressive. But he said he just wants to introduce himself. So I will turn it over to uh, Dr. Rusty Kelly. Great, thank you for participating. Uh, so Rusty Kelly, Senior VP Investments and Alliances, the RD Fund, uh, which is the venture arm of the Foundation Fighting Blindness. The RD Fund stands for Retinal Degeneration Fund. And it's, it's because we're a 501c3 subsidiary of the foundation and the foundation is the sole member of this 501c3, uh, we are formed to serve the mission of the foundation, and that's to find treatments, preventions, and cures for inherited retinal dystrophies and dry AMD uh, by way of making investments uh, in companies that are seeking um, to develop therapeutics. Uh, and so our investments serve two purposes. One, most importantly, to seek a clinical return and uh, to a financial return. And these are what the field refers to as mission-related investments. Uh, and we ultimately behave just like a uh, institutional or a traditional venture capital firm, um, but we do not have limited partners. We don't, most venture capital firms raise money through uh, institutional investors, through pension funds, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we raise funds through donations. And so those donations come from the Foundation Fighting Blindness. We have a consolidated financial statement. Um, so we really are, even though we are a subsidiary, we have our own 990, um, and on paper we look independent. Um, we are ex essentially an extension of the Foundation Fighting Blindness. We've made 12 investments so far. Um, we, those investments range from um, gene therapy and other genetic medicines like RNA, um, therapies, Procure is a great example of an RNA therapy, uh, and then the classic neuroprotection, which um, generally applies to mid-stage disease, and then uh, some of the replacement therapies like optogenetics, which were most of the people, I believe, were in the optogenetic session right now. <laughs> um, but we have two optogenetic strategies. One is Videre, and the other is Insparing Vision. That was They recently acquired an asset out of Gamut Therapeutics. Um, Denise Telcar at the Institute de Vision. Uh, so, yeah, we've deployed a good percentage of the $117.5 million that we've raised so far. Um, these are closed-ended funds, 10-year funds. Um, 
with some flexibility because we are a nonprofit. We're not beholden to the rules of, of, uh, of traditional VC, but we certainly borrow their business practices. Um, but Fund 1 has $73 million under management, and, and all of those funds are committed. Um, we typically make a small initial investment with a 2x reserve. So two times the initial investment goes into a reserve so that we have enough capital you know, to invest in uh, the subsequent financing series. And the game here is not to get fully diluted out. So we like to start early. And when you start early, there's a good chance that by the, by the time that therapeutic reaches the market, if it's uh, uh, lucky enough to reach the market, we're lucky enough. Um, the amount of money that it takes to get there is 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 uh, so significant that a lot of the smaller investors that come in early are diluted out, and it's just it's just classic ownership. And um, as new investors come in, uh, they you know they sort of squeeze out the smaller investors. So that's why we set aside a reserve that allows us to participate uh, in in subsequent rounds. We are not passive investors like the Cystic Fibrosis uh, Foundation. Um, because we address so many IRDs, over 300, um, there's enough activity where we can uh, govern our investments by sitting on the boards, either as voting board directors or board observers. Um, our board of directors of the RD fund is independent from uh, the FFB board of directors uh, other than there's automatic appointments from FFB board members to the RD fund. So the chairman of the board has an automatic appointment to, F to the RD fund board. Um, the head of our research oversight committee, John Steinberg, has an automatic appointment to the RD fund board. And uh, the head of our scientific advisory board, Jackie Duncan, has an automatic appointment. So it's a great, it's a, it ties the, the organizations together. Um, the other board members uh, for the RD fund have other domain expertise. Um, we have an investment banker, uh, Kelly, Wed uh, Kelly Lisbachen. She's the head of banking for Wedbush Patgrau. So it's really important to have an investment banker uh, in our circle as well. They, they, they really touch the markets and they touch the public markets as well. And that's, that's one of the goals here. Uh, for, for our portfolio companies is to exit at some point. And when we say exit, we mean either going into the public markets, which in itself is not an exit strategy. Um, it's just a, it's a fin financing strategy. Um, but some would refer to it as an, as an exit for uh, potential exit for shareholders because it's a liquidation event, right? You can sell your shares now in the open market as a, as a shareholder if you invested in the company. Um, and then the other form of an exit is to be purchased. So we had one of our companies, we've had two exits so far, two companies have been purchased. Fideri was purchased by Novartis in uh, uh, October of 2019 for a whopping $150 million up front. Um, and if they meet certain milestones, that, the earnout milestones, it can be up to $250 million. Uh, that's a great example for the foundation because those funds, as I said earlier, those returns would, make, would differentiate us from traditional VC and it's our version of venture philanthropy is those returns from Novartis purchasing Videre 
um, went back to the Foundation Fighting Blindness to further its mission, and the Foundation took some of those proceeds and used them to fill shortfall gaps in the research, the granting budget, and the rest of those funds uh, flowed back into the RD Fund too. So um, we are fundraising currently for RD Fund too. We've raised approximately $45 million thus far, thanks to this wonderful person in the back, Judy Taylor, and her team. Uh, we have a big development team at the foundation that um, is raising funds from donors in many different ways. Um, you know, obviously this this is bigger capital than the capital needs are much bigger um, uh, for therapeutic development than they are on the granting side. So we're you know, we're targeting major donors that um, are passionate about uh, the investment side of of you know, the foundation strategy. So that's where things are at the moment. We are. Um, hopeful that we'll continue to raise capital to allow us to, uh, to, to make some, some new investments. We have approximately $10 million right now that we're looking to deploy. Um, and, uh, and so I think you know, the, the name of the game here is to, um, is to keep doing our diligence on prospective companies that come to us in a variety of different ways, including the foundation. We have these translational awards on the granting side of the foundation that provides a source of new opportunities for us. Um, and in fact, you know, we we have a, a first right of negotiation uh, with with those companies. And if if uh, if trap if these translational uh, research awards that are um, not early basic science, they're more on the preclinical. Uh, readiness side. These are the preclinical studies that you conduct to get into the clinics for a first-in-human trial. Uh, these TRAP awards, we, um, we're negotiating with a, with a few uh, awardees at the moment um, so that the RD fund can manage those granting awards via potentially via equity in those companies. So you know, equity, we, when we say equity, what we mean is um, ownership in the company. Just like when you buy stock um, in the stock market, um, you become a shareholder. Well, we're a fairly large shareholder in all of our companies, uh, and you know, we like to be. We like. We don't only do equity. Um, we will do not. They call refer to as non-dilutive funding, um, where we're not buying into their equity pool, their their um, uh, their cap capital structure. We're just have an agreement to split the cost to co-develop for a project. Um, we did this with Procure, and we did this with Nocuity. Um, uh, these are these are two early investments for the for the RD fund, uh, for the foundation that were um, wrapped into the RD fund, um, where you know it gives us when you when you do co-funding strategies like this. It gives you more ground floor visibility into the programs because you're sharing the cost and you're you're working together to develop the development strategy. Which animal model are you going to use? Um, you know the regulatory strategy of getting into your first in human trial in the U.S. and Europe. Uh, once you're into the clinics, you know what is your clinical trial design? Um, so we, it gives us more ground floor visibility into. In, into that development strategy. 
So we're flexible. Um, we, we've even um, used convertible notes where we're not ready to value a company. And in other words, you know, typically when you do uh, an equity investment in a company, you have to value that equity. There's a, there's a valuation to the company that is negotiated between the investors and the owners of the company, the management team of the company. Um, but when you're not ready to value a company, maybe it's too early, you can use a convertible note. And that, all that note does, it's, it's, it's sort of a, it's a, it's a debt vehicle where um, you, know, you make your investment and it converts into the next round, financing round when there is a valuation. So when there are bona fide investors around the table, they'll value the company and then your convertible note just gives you the right to convert your dollars into equity, um, typically at a discount. So. Uh, I know it's a lot of technical stuff, but I just—it's just to give you a sense that we're flexible when it comes to our to, to our investment strategies with with among our companies, depending on the stage of the company. Um, we've looked at at over a hundred companies thus far, and we've probably gone really deep on diligence on a, probably I would say a third of those, and um, and we've made investments in twelve. So it gives you a sense of the rate, you know, at which you know of, of investment. Um, I'd say it's around 10%, you know, which is very close to the NIH, probably probably pretty close to our granting awards at the at the foundation as well. So there's a lot of words there. Let me just stop and see if there are any questions. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, this is Yeah, so this is Dan Day of the Orlando chapter volunteer. And um, so this is kind of a medical question, so I certainly will understand if you need to defer that to, to someone, but I think you probably know the answer. You had mentioned uh, optogenetics with, in conjunction with sparing vision. Um, and when I think of optogenetics, I tend to think of Vidari with their approach of enabling ganglion cells at the end of the optic nerve to, to sense light. And sparing vision, I kind of associate with this uh, rod-derived cone viability factor. And I didn't, I guess I didn't realize that that was a form of optogenetics. Is that, have I got those two connections right? Is, uh, Great question, Dan. So the, uh, I wasn't referring to the RDCVF, the rod-derived cone viability factor gene therapy program as optogenetics. They have another program that was announced, I believe it was about six or maybe nine months ago. They acquired a company... Uh, from one of our scientific advisors, uh, Denis Delcara, um, who trained in John Flannery's lab, an optogenetics lab uh, at Berkeley and is now the Institute of Vision. She created a company called Gamut Therapeutics. And uh, the target is, um, well, it's not, in this case, it's not necessarily a target, but it, they are transducing dormant photoreceptors with an ion channel called GERC1. And so that's a pipeline early stage program now at Sparing Vision. RDCVF is the lead. Uh, so they've added an optogenetic strategy to their portfolio, which is fantastic. And, it, you know, this is, you know, Dan, we can debate the definition of optogenetics. And, you know, you're obviously right on. Videre is making non-light sensitive inner retina cells light sensitive. Um, in the case of a dormant 
photoreceptor, you know, it, it already has the machinery to be light sensitive. It's just dormant. So we're sort of awakening those dormant, at least that's the theory, right? This has to be proven out. Great question. We can go in a lot of different directions. I know this is a large and tough audience. Um, Ra. small children, so I project a lot. Um, so you mentioned that, that you're, uh, you're investing actively. This is a very naive question. I don't do any investing. Um, what, why do other philanthropies tend to invest passively and not actively? I oh, love the question. So Cystic Fibrosis Foundation trailblazed in this space, um, but they have one disease, right? So you can imagine that if you develop 10 different therapeutic strategies to, to, to address cystic fibrosis uh, and you're the investor in all 10, well, in, in essence, you're, you've, you're competing with one another, right? It may be different approaches, different modalities, small molecule, gene therapy, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But if you were to take, if you were to be an active investor for all 10 of those companies, and you're, and you're sitting on those boards, then it gets, so now you've got a real conflict of interest, right? Um, so they tend to, they're using two classic venture capital firms. Um, uh, one of them is Flagship, and the other one is um, Lightstone Ventures. And uh, they are investing on behalf of the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. Now, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation has this large endowment. We do not. And so that large three or four billion dollars uh, endowment, if I recall correctly, um, you know, they have to distribute funds every year. Um, and it's usually 5%. So 5% of, let's just say, 5 billion is pretty significant. Um, so, how, so how do you deploy that money um, you know, to meet you know, charitable tax deductions on that sort of thing? Um, you know, one way to do it is to hire a couple of VC firms that like cystic fibrosis as a target. Um, and with Flagship, that's a very interesting model. They just announced this recently. With Flagship, what they're doing is they're, they're saying, okay, well, all these new companies in the Flagship portfolio, big, big VC firm, they have all these new novel technologies, gene editing, gene augmentation, uh, and base editing, prime editing, um, they've created this company with Flagship that allows Flagship to pull in those technologies that weren't being previ previously applied to cystic fibrosis, now are applying, applying it to cystic fibrosis. The foundation is different in that we have 300 plus IRDs. Now, 25% you know, of them have not have yet to be identified, as you know, you know the elusive genes, uh, but we still have a lot of indications that our clinical consortium, our physicians, our um, SAB, our grantees are addressing. So it gives us more opportunity to be more active in those investments. Um, we're bound to see conflict at some point where, um, let's say we have one company going after Stargardt disease via gene augment, classic gene augmentation, um, and then another company who's maybe doing gene augmentation but didn't choose Stargardt disease initially and decides to go into Stargardt disease. Well, you know, that's, you know, we have the power or some power as governing board directors 
to, to sway them in, in different directions so, so that we're not competing with, with one another. That hasn't happened yet, by the way, but it's bound to happen at some point. Um, so that's the downside of being an active investor. But the way you handle that is you, you just you're, you, you, you have um, firewalls within your VC fund. Uh, so our management team and our board, um, if, you know, if we truly did have two competing companies, those of us who were sitting on those board seats would, would then um, be recused from any discussion um, around, around those indications, around those therapeutic strategies. So there, you know, we, we take confidentiality very, very serious. We take conflict of interest very, very serious. You know, we don't want to be on the front page of the, you know, the New York Times. Um, and so I think we, we do a really good job governing everything as it relates to the RD fund above board. And again, we have a terrific board and, and gentlemen like Warren Thaler, Gordon Gunn himself, um, who's a board emeritus for the RD fund and, and a significant anchor donor, uh, they, governance is their thing. I mean, they, they study people and they study structure. Uh, they studied conflict, and so it's, it's great that we have that experience because most of us, in these early-stage investments, we don't have to get too crazy, but most of us are focused on the science. Um, I'm, you know, I've, spent, I've spent most of my career in development, discovery, preclinical, and I've done a little clinical as well, but we're focused on, when we sit on these boards, we're, it's not so much the business. It does matter, of course. Uh, I mean, it's necessary, but we're focused on what is your development plan and what are your timelines and how much money do you have? What's your runway? I mean, that's yes. Yeah, the, these are these are classic elements of um, of uh, of biotech. It's a long an long answer to your question. So we're, we we I love Q and A. You can ask. There's no dumb question. Throw anything at me. This this is this is fun. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so does the foundation provide ongoing support for studies after an initial investment? And then conversely, is funding pulled when performance targets aren't met? Yes, yeah. Now that's, that's a, let's start with the first one. Um, one reason why a lot of the venture capitalists like us is because we bring all of the FFB resources to bear. Um, so... You know, we have this wonderful registry, for example, of over 20,000 patients, um, with many of them that have both the genotypic and the phenotypic data that, you know, that is paramount to selection for clinical trials for various companies. Um, then we have this clinical consortium that's conducting natural history studies, and you know, this consortium is over 40 or 45 leading eye centers across the world. Um, and they're top-notch investigators and, and their access to patients. So we bring that to bear. Um, so, you know, we've used this term that we're smart, we're smart money, and we truly are. We back that up um, because, you know, we're, you know, for example, um, I used StarGuard as an example earlier. We've spent five-plus million dollars on ProgStar, the natural history study uh, for, for StarGuard disease, and, and that natural history study enlightened the field. And, and a lot of different companies going after Stargardt disease uh, use this data um, to understand, you know, disease progression. And it, and it sort of illustrated slow, medium, and fast progressors. So if you're if you're a developer, if you're a company, you know, which of those progression, you know, which of those uh, um, levels of progression do you choose? It's a tough question, right? Because 
You could be, if you go with the fast progressors, maybe it's too fast. You go with the slow progressors, maybe it's too slow. It take you take forever to read out. So the goal these days is to do things as quickly as possible and with as few dollars as possible. That's not always the right strategy. Um, the, you know, the better strategy is maybe um, really understand the the time of intervention, that therapeutic window, um, and the appropriate endpoints that are associated with it. Um, so yeah, so we bring to bear those those resources. And of course, you know, as I mentioned earlier, FFB has this granting engine. Um, so all of you know those grantees and their projects we're privy to. We you know we have we can we they're we're, they're visible to the RD fund. And if there's something that's investable, um, a therapeutic that's investable, then you know we can place that into a company if the if the scientific founders are interested, or we can create a new company around it. Um, so there's lots of lots of avenues to sort of leverage all the FFB activities. Um, your second question is if if a company is not meeting its milestones, does FFB pull its funding? Um, not so much on the granting side of the fence for the foundation. You know, you, you'd have to be, you'd have to really screw things up in terms of milestones. Things change, right? I mean, n nothing ever works out as you as you planned it to in the lab, um, or seldom it does. Um, so we understand that, and we you know we we are there to support uh, these grantees as they pivot in in different directions. We just want to know. Did you conduct the study appropriately? That way we know that if the answer is yes or no, we believe the answer. If it's not conducted properly um, and you have no answer at the end of the funding, then you know it's a, it's a waste of time, it's a waste of money. Um, but on the RD fund side, um, things are set up such that if you do not meet your milestones, you don't receive the next tranche of investment. A lot of our investments are tranched over time, um, and you know the ability to call down the second tranche. You know, so if it's a ten million dollar initial investment, and you split it into two tranches, a lot of times you'll see it split into three or four tranches. But um, you know, just for the, you know, the easier concept is let's say there's two tranches of five million, and the second five million dollar tranche is called down. Once you've met two, let's say, two clear milestones, um, first in human, first patient enrolled in your lead asset, and then maybe an IND clearance um, to get into a first in human trial for your second asset. Okay, you met those milestones, you've, you know, you've pulled down the second tranche of $5 million, and now you can go execute. Um, but those tranches are in place in case you do not meet your milestone and you're not putting... It's, it's, no, it's not dumb money, right? I mean, you're not just throwing money down the drain. Um, it's better to tranche. Now, not all companies do that. We've had, we've had a couple of companies who've raised very large sums of money untranched. Um, it's a little dangerous, but you know, it also depends on how big the platform is. If it's a gene therapy program for one indication or two or three indications, well, you, know, you kind of know what you're getting yourself into. If it's this huge platform company of gene editing um, and, and, and they're going after non-ocular indications, we have companies in our portfolio that are going after non-retinal indications. It's fine. Yeah, I mean, these are generally larger markets. You know, we have one company going after cataracts. Um, we've had companies interested in glaucoma. Um, 
you know, that's fine. You know, we're not opposed to investing in a company that's going after non-ocular assets. Um, but generally speaking, when, they, when those companies do, when we make investments in those companies, we will then have a side letter with that company that says our dollars are going to the ocular assets. Um, so it's another little thread that that's not part of, that doesn't answer your question, but it's just another thread that, you know, we want to be, again, above board. We want companies to, um, and, and auditors and the IRS to know that we're doing things in a very healthy manner. Our dollars are going straight to retinal research and not other indications. Yes, Dan? Thanks for your question. Yeah, I was wondering, you, you said at the beginning that uh, the expectation is for both uh, financial and clinical results. I wonder uh, just what the metrics or measures are like that you, how do you calculate them for ROI, if you will, particularly on the, on the clinical side, you know, how those derived, how do you set them? What's the process for it? Yeah, there's no metric per se for clinical success other than the, the natural progression of clinical trials. Did you meet your primary and secondary endpoints in a phase one, two? Um, you know, did you meet your efficacy endpoints in a pivotal or registration trial? Uh, and, you know, do you, do you, are you granted approval? You know, those are, you know, three logical um, uh, milestones for clinical return, clinical outcomes. And then, you know, the financial outcomes are, you know, classic VC metrics, right? Um, a multiple of the return and then a time value of return, an IRR. Um, you know, most people just use the multiple of return, right? So if you invest a million, you made eight, then it's an 8x return, right? But it doesn't, that doesn't capture the time value of your investment. So then we'll use I. So for Videre, for example, we, we owned 8% in that company, a little over 8%. And that $150 million up front um, gave us uh, a 4 point, I think it was a 4.1x return. But the IRR, the investment rate of return, which it, 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 uh, takes into consideration the time, we'd only invested this company for you know, less than 18 months. So the IRR was like 400%. It's incredible. Um, you, know, you, you look at a really good VC firm and their performance over time, you're a good firm may have 5x return on a multiple across their average across their portfolio and an IR of 25 to 50%. So, you know, we're still a young portfolio. We only have a few exits. Um, we, you know, we need, we need to, uh, to, to get a, a few of these companies um, uh, you know, into the public markets, for example. Um, that, that's our preferred exit, by the way. If Novartis or Pfizer or somebody buys one of our companies, we, have, we lose control over it. It's not a bad thing. You know, they have the resources to take it further. Uh, and if we know their teams and trust their teams like we do in Novartis, um, then it's a good thing. Um, but, you know, we just have to understand that going into, you know, and we're, we're, we're very open with our donors about this, that, um, yeah, we may lose control, um, but that's why we take more of an active role in governing our, our investments so that we can steer them in the right direction. Uh, but if you go public, you can grow the company and continue to manage the company. So, yeah, it, it's a, in, you know, with impact investing these days, um, the metrics of return are you're seeing a lot of firms get really clever and sophisticated 
with how to measure impact. Um, right now, we're just keeping it real simple. You know, clinical success is clinical success. Yes, sir. Please do. So if you're, if you're trying to get a return on something, like and you invested in a company that's developing a treatment for uh, something that's going to treat like a few people realistically, yeah. uh, comparatively, um, but you invested a lot of money into the company, at, at what point are you like expecting a return? Or are you even expecting a return at that point? Yeah, I mean, that, those decisions are generally made up front. Um, you know, you choose an indication that has a decent market size, and this is how the world works, right? You're, you can't go at it alone. You could, but it would require a lot of capital. We're a small fund, so we need other investors around us. Other investors are, you know, they don't like small markets. Um, so if you're going to go the small market route, like Opus Genetics, for example, we just spun out Opus Genetics, and we founded that company, and we're the lead investor in that company. So we can steer that company uh, with our board governance included um, in the direction of, okay, we'll tackle an ultra, ultra rare, um, but couple it with a larger market asset. And now you can sort of can, you can take you know, two or three larger market assets and sprinkle a couple of ultra rares in there. Um, now you're sort of offsetting cash flows, potential cash flows, and costs. Um, and and you know, it, Gordon Gunn has always said this, you know, so I love this quote from Gordon um, that a you know, rising tide lifts all boats. That's kind of where we're headed with Opus is let's do our best to address some of the smaller markets uh, because most VC firms are, are not going to do that. So we need to, we need to reduce costs in order to do that. You know, so hopefully in five or ten years, the, the two most significant costs right now for gene therapy, as an example, are manufacturing and obviously the clinical costs. Right now, the manufacturing costs are more expensive than the clinical costs. So we need to reduce manufacturing costs. Clinical costs, it's hard to reduce clinical costs. Um, you know, you can, you can uh, enroll less patients. You can uh, design a study such that you're, you're taking more risk by enrolling fewer patients. You know, that, that's one way to reduce costs. But that's, not, that's, that's, not, that's probably not the right, right move. Um, so Opus, for example, and a couple of other of our portfolio companies are trying to figure out manufacturing strategies to reduce costs because for retina, the manufacturing cost in gene therapy, gene therapy has one example. Um, it's, a, uh, it, it's, if, you know, it's a scaled down issue for us, right? These are small batch. All you need is, you know, a 10 liter I know this, this, I'm throwing out numbers, but forget about what the numbers are. But a 10-liter GMP manufactured gene therapy batch can treat the entire po patient population in one indication. Um, whereas, um, you know, one of these companies is going after a very large indication um, via gene therapy that's systemic, requires larger volumes, you know, we just require 100 microliters of, you know, a certain titer in the retina. 
Um, but you know, these other companies are spending a ton of money to scale up their manufacturing. For us, we need to scale it down. But uh, unfortunately, this cost remained the same. <laughs> Regardless of, you know, you try to scale down to a 10-liter batch from a, you know, a 5,000-liter batch, cost doesn't change a whole lot. It still requires the same amount of people, the same you know, quality assurance, the same systems and processes that the FDA requires to manufacture uh, for human use. I like, I like my long-winded questions, do you, <laughs> or answers to your questions. Um, so, yeah, we'd be happy to go in, in, in other directions if you'd like. Yes, Ron. Uh, and can you do us a favor? I know this is a small sure. audience, but could you introduce yourself? Because you're oh. very important to our foundation. Oh, sure. My name is Rob Huffnagel. I'm a researcher at the National Institute, and I work with the Foundation Fighting Blindness on a, on a number of different projects, like the Consortium with Natural History Studies. Um, as well as the scientific advisory board. And um, yeah, so we, we have a lot of fun. Right. Thank you. Uh, so um, I guess my question is, is around um, the sort of the, the, what is the sort of appropriate stage of the product? Because um, you mentioned being able to spin off companies and invest in companies. And also a lot of those products might be um, occurring in a university setting that has its own rules about IP. And these are, you know, maybe also NIH-funded projects, which has its own, yeah. you know, things with IP. And then, you know, that might also be um, complicated by they're also looking for multiple, you know, investors. And so what's, I guess, the, the stage of product that the R&D fund finds to be, um, I guess, the, the sweet spot for, for investing? Or does it just, you know, sort of just depend on, on the, the scenario and, and, you know, like, yeah, are, are Yeah, it's an important question. You're, you're getting at a fund's thesis. Um, and every fund needs to be, you know, really kind of, they need to advertise their thesis to the general audience so that people know that, you know, founders, scientific founders know um, which investors to approach. For us, we say that we want you to be uh, in the clinic within 18 to 24 months. And so generally speaking, that means that you're in the preclinical stage. You're no longer in... Uh, you're no longer in the research uh, phase where you're still trying to figure things out. Um, so if it's gene therapy, you know, you may be in, a, in an animal model. Um, you know, you're using research-grade vector, so there's, you know, there's always questions around that as opposed to GMP or the officially manufactured vectors that the NIH is now getting, getting into. Um, but it's really about... Um, what we call IND readiness studies. So you're no longer asking questions, what is the target? What is the construct? Um, how does this work? You've answered those questions. Now you're, and, and you, already, you know this, Rob, this is for the, for the audience. We're, you know, now you move into this phase of, okay, well, you need to get ready for a first-in-human trial, and you need to show the FDA that you can repeat those early research studies in a very rigorous and reproducible manner under FDA uh, regulations, you know, so everything becomes super tight and regulated at that point. Um, so, you know, we, we have invested in some early stage research projects, um, but, you know, we need, to, we need something that's more investable. Um, 
we, we can operate that way if we wanted to as a fund and, and as an extension of the foundation, natural extension of the foundation going from grants you know, to you know, these sort of more translational projects. But we need to behave like a tra traditional VC. And there's enough activity out there. If everything was bottlenecked into research, then we would probably play more in that space. Um, but there's enough activity and there's so much near clinical stage activity that we can sort of pick and choose those assets. Um, and I think, you know, most of the investors, to answer the latter part of your question, most of the investors that we syndicate with um, have similar mindset. You know, they want to see their dollar because they're, they're addressing these limited partners that we don't need to address. But, um, you know, they, they want to, you know, keep their LPs happy so that the LP will invest in the next 100 or 200 or 500 million dollar fund. So those LPs are expecting a return on their investment within three to five years. Never, it rarely happens that they, they get those wins, right? It's more like 10 years for therapeutics. Um, so, you know, they're of the same mindset. We need to be clinically staged. You know, being in the market, in the private markets, being clinically staged um, is a game changer, especially in a terrible, bio this is the worst biotech market we've ever experienced. So now what we're seeing is investors favor clinically staged assets, not preclinically staged assets. We have a lot of preclinical stage assets in our portfolio. So, you know, it's, it's a concern for us. It's a risk. Um, why is this the worst biotech phase we've ever been in? Part of it is due to inflation and rising interest rates. So when interest rates rise, um, you can no longer be in that growth mindset, right? You can't borrow money. It's more expensive, right? You want cheap capital when you're, when you're an early-stage biotech company. Um, another reason is because there was a bubble created coming out of COVID. Um, COVID, you know, investors, you know, if you watch trends and how and money flows in, just in biotech alone, um, it's, it's kind of dumb money, right? You've got this this capital that just starts chasing activity and trends, and it generally follows, um, you, know, uh, the, you know, when a sector gets hit, whether it's energy or banks, you know, money moves out of, you know, if it's banking, then money moves out of banking. It goes into staples or whatever, some other asset class. Well, COVID, all of a sudden with the, you know, with especially how, you know, how quickly we're able to address COVID, and you know, the, with with all the vaccines, all this it, it it hyped biotech, it hyped life sciences in general. All this money, you know, flooded into biotech, which was great. Um, it, we had a couple of banner years there, um, but now that things are correcting um, and uh, valuations are coming down, interest rates, you know, I think the Fed's going to raise, you know, I don't know if you saw that you know, earlier this week, I think we're going to see another 0.75 basis point Fed hike. Um, you know, that, that, you know, there's going to be a ripple effect. There already is. Um, and so, you know, some of the more high-risk biotech plays aren't in favor, you know, as opposed to, because most of the money that's chasing that high-risk biotech play is you know, they're looking for that big return, right? You know, I mean, you know, the failure rate in our space is 80, 90%. But if you hit on that one 10%, 
um, you know, it, it, it can make you a lot of money. Um, most VC firms behave that way. They expect one or two wins out of 10 investments. But they want a big win. That's why they like these platform-based companies. Um, so, yeah, there's probably other reasons. You know, I re- I, I'm a Wall Street Journal guy, so that's all I read. I don't, I don't even pay attention to the news um, in the evenings like my family does. Um, so all I see is what they report. <laughs> and then, of course, I have a number of biotech journals that I read. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just part of, the, it's part of the flows of capital, you know, in and out of sectors. It'll come back. Biotech will come back. Um, but, you know, all of the biotech in, indices, they are way off of the S&P. If you look at the S&P 500 over, you know, the last couple of years, you know, it's, it's, it's pointing, their curves are pointing up. Our biotech curves are pointing down. And now you're seeing this separation uh, in real time of like, you know, 50, 60 percent difference um, in in their, you know, in their um, growth rates. So, but it'll it'll come back, I'm sure. You know, it always does. It's, but you know, it's now it's more important for clinically staged assets that have a shot at the market, the market and profitability. Is, is going to drive, you know, in this environment, is going to drive investment in, in biotech. So all these preclinical companies that have, have jumped into the game, you know, based on all this biotech hype are probably going to suffer, probably going to see a lot of consolidation um, where, you know, even in the public markets, you know, maybe a public company is struggling for similar reasons and, you know, They'll they'll do a reverse merger or a strategic merger with a with a private company and combine and now you've you know hopefully you've um, improved the pipeline uh, of that company and um, and you have a more compelling strategy you know that investors will like. They're talking about basketball. I just heard something about basketball. Uh, Yes. And that kind of what happened from here, say, where Proby Bar, they had a couple things in the fire and kind of condensed Yeah, um, they're a publicly traded company, so they're very careful to, you know, to publicize. Um, I mean, anything that I know is is in the public domain. So I, I, I do not know, and and if I did, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't share it. Um, uh, anything confidential that's not in the public domain because, you know, anything material can change things for a publicly traded company. Um, but we've made a substantial investment in Procure um, for, as I mentioned earlier, a non-dilutive investment. We don't own equity in Procure, which has obviously suffered greatly. I mean, they've lost most of their value. Um, but we did a co-development strategy for an Usher 2A uh, study to get through their phase two proof of concept study, which they have, and they're now in um, in in a in a pivotal registration trial called Cirrus. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I mean the the failure that they the the so called failure. Most of us and who who are very close to procure don't believe that that's a failure. It's just again, it's a mas- it's a matter of. Um, U.S. regulators and the ophthalmology division of the FDA um, being a little bit too strict on what they determine as an effect 
um, a statistically meaningful effect. So um, I think Pro Procure is in a, in a tough spot right now, but I think that they will, um, uh, I think, you know, it, it's going to be data-driven at this point, and we're going to have to wait. You know, this serious trial for S2A is a 12-month study. And, and, and they're going to enroll approximately 100 patients, I, I believe. And it takes time to enroll, enroll 100 patients. But they have a lot of great sites and a lot of sites that are in our clinical consortium. So to answer your earlier question, this is an example of where we're bringing to bear our, our resources. Well, uh, do you think we're sure. back to 2008, 2009, when everything kind of tightened up and funding wasn't as dispersed? Or? Could be. I, you know, I'm... I wish I had a crystal ball, but it's it's. Um, they say it's going to get worse, um, and you know I've I've heard a year, I've heard eighteen months. You know, um, you know there's other market conditions that influence all of this too, right? I mean, there's um, you know the Ukrainian um, situation. You know, there's interest rates, of course, and um, but. I don't know. I mean, I'm not a doom and gloom person. I'm a long view. Um, but for the company, including the companies in our portfolio who only have six or 12 months of cash runway, they're thinking a little bit differently than I am. Um, you know, we're, I, I'm personally a long view investor. Uh, so I don't trade. I'm, you know, I'm just not all, I'm not about the short term. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see. You know, I, a lot of, of our, we've talked, uh, there's been lots published on, 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 on this topic recently from big VC firms, uh, Sequoia, RA Capital, and some of their lead general partners. And, you know, they, the message to them is um, it's too volatile, too unpredictable. All of our companies should tighten up, stop spending, and start thinking about how do you survive for the next 30 days. That should be your mentality. How do I survive for the next 30 days? Um, and so, you know, we're talking to our portfolio companies about that. Um, luckily, we're, we're in really good shape right now. Our portfolio companies are in really good shape. Opus Genetics, the company I mentioned earlier, um, is probably the most at risk because it only has about eight and a half months cash runway. And here we are talking about a year, 12 months to 18 months of, of a down market. So we have two new guests um, who are maybe not familiar with the RD fund, um, but we're just doing general Q&A at this point, so feel free to ask any question. And what is our time frame here? We, we have time at, um, it ends at 4.15, so okay. we have time for some more questions. Great. Yes, sir. No, that had to be the last one. What percentage of um, funds for our Uh, so all of our capital is, is donated, all of it. Yeah, um, but I think to I think maybe we can answer that question by saying, have have we received any capital from you know the return on our investment from the RD fund? And yes, we sold Videri to Novartis, um, and you know received approximately thirteen and a half million up front, and we stand to earn another you know up to about twenty two million. Um, and those dollars are flowing back into the foundation, right? But we've, we've raised, and thanks to, you know, Gordon Gunn and a lot of his generous donations, 
we've raised close to $900 million in our 50-year history. Um, so, you know, the percentage coming from the RD fund, RD fund's only, you know, a couple years old. It's four years old um, this October. So, you know, again, our portfolio is young, and, you know, we hope to return significantly. We have four or five companies that are well poised for return as soon as the public markets open back up. Um, but, yeah, small percentage coming from investments at this point. Great questions. Judy, do you have any questions for me? Was there anything discussed about the research itself? Any promising areas that look exciting right now and yeah, things yeah. along those lines? Uh, that's, that's a great question. So we Dry MD is unmet at this point um, across the field. Um, you know, obviously there's a couple of companies that are in late stage clinical trials that look, things look promising. Uh, but as a foundation and as the RD fund, um, you know, we have Dry AMD sprinkled in there as sort of you know, second, third indications. Um, for some of some of the therapeutics that are being developed, like Videri, for example, optogenetics. Um, if they prove it out in RP, then you know they'll they may pursue dry AMD. Dry AMD is a big priority for us. Um, one of the problems with dry AMD is, you know, unlike us two A or you know some of the other indications, Stargard that I mentioned earlier. Um, the genetic identification of dry AMD is very difficult. Um, so it, there's no clear monogenic uh, cause, um, a single gene cause of, of, uh, of dry MD. Rob, Rob may know, know, know more than me on this topic, but you know, we're still trying to figure the genetics out. So, and we will. We'll, we'll, we'll get it figured out eventually, especially the day, this, in this day and age of you know, informatics and artificial intelligence. We'll figure it out. We, and our sequencing is getting stronger and stronger, our ability to sequence um, uh, all of the genome and to look for these you know, various causative factors is probably multiple factors um, and some of them you know, may be environmental um, in addition to genetic. So dry MD is a priority. I mentioned optogenetics as a potential modality that could address dry MD. Um, you know, replacement therapies in general are very important to us. So we have a lot of gene editing and RNA therapies and gene augmentation. We have a lot of that going on in our portfolio. Um, but in terms of replacement for late stage progression or, or disease, vision loss, it's Fidere, their optogenetics platform. And then, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Sparing Vision's um, optogenetic uh, uh, asset they acquired from Denise Tokara. Um, so we need more of the cell-based re you know, replacement therapies. You know, there's a lot of competition, a lot of companies in that space um, currently. Um, we're still trying to make sense of it. You know, it's, it's, it's super high risk, right? I mean, the, um, the ability to prove that you can culture a photoreceptor and then inject that photoreceptor in the back of the eye and that, that photoreceptor in grafts and intercalates, you know, with, as you mentioned earlier, you know, the 
um, or I'm sorry, uh, Dan did, um, you know, with the inner retina, the ability to um, uh, form the appropriate synaptic junctions with the inner retina, the ganglion cells and the bipolar cells. That's a tough order. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's quite possible. So I think gene replacement therapies, optogenetics, um, are going to be very important to our, our constituents, our, our donors that are affected, late stage in particular. Yes, sir. Um, do, do therapies that are currently in trials, do, do they still count as an unmet need or... Or at what point do you consider them to be uh, transitioned to something that is a met need and no longer needs? If, um, if there's an approved therapeutic and it's effective, then it's meeting a need. A clinical trial-phased candidate has not necessarily met a need. It met the need if it was effective in a small cohort of patients, clinical trial participants. So it shows promise to meet the need, but... This is about addressing a larger audience. So, yeah, sort of a gray area answer to, to that, that question. Um, you know, if we, you know, the beauty of a gene therapy trial, for example, is we can see an effect um, as a secondary endpoint. It's all about safety in these first, first in human trials, but you can still measure a secondary objective, structural, and functional outcomes. And if you see an outcome, like we are, for example, with Atsina Therapeutics in our portfolio that we helped form and co-funded, um, they have a very important lead asset called LCA1. And, you know, the data is beautiful. The efficacy data is beautiful. Um, you know, we look at that as with great potential to address an, a significant unmet need. Um, but they still have to go through a registration trial. But the data is so beautiful that maybe that we can accelerate that registration trial. Fewer patients, smaller time frame. Um, lower costs you know, is what the VCs want. Another great question. All right. Well, any other last burning questions? We have, I think we have five or ten more minutes. Feel free to throw anything out there. Uh, yeah, you, we talked about sparing vision a little bit at the beginning, so I was wondering... Um, my last recollection is that uh, sparing vision wasn't too far away from beginning to enroll people in their uh, rod-derived cone viability factor trial. Do you, do you know what their current target is? Yeah, they're, they're close. Um, by the end of the year, they should have a cleared IME. That's the objective. Um, and they've already started their, I think it's called FinRod, their natural history study for that trial. So it's very important to... You know, for an indication like that, where it's going to take longer to prove out, you this is where design matters, and um, and you know having the appropriate control arm uh, in an early trial, in this case a natural history control arm, so that you can track uh, patient progression um, in the untreated patient populations so or the real world population. So. Um, they're doing all the right things to get ready for that first in human trial. Yeah. All right. Well, a big round of applause for Dr. Rusty yeah. Kelly. Yeah. That was fun. Thank you all. Thank you for joining, everyone. And the next session is going to be genetic testing and counseling. 
and my retina tracker, which will begin at 4.20 p.m. in Fiesta 5 and 6.